welcome to the Produce Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Nickel, and I am delighted to welcome as our guest today, David Dunkack, a longtime executive in mobile computing and AIDC. Now, before you say, what the heck does whatever that is have to do with fresh produce? Let me explain. If you're a regular listener, you know that we often talk about leadership on this podcast. Dave has been leading teams with great success for the better part of 30 years, and along with developing people, many of whom have gone on to great success themselves, Dave has for many years had PL responsibility, so he's very well versed in balancing those long-term goals of building a team and a business with the shorter-term goals of beating last year's sales numbers for the upcoming period. So back to the topic of leadership. Uh, it, as many of the listeners may know, I recently published the first-ever State of the Produce Manager report, which was based on a survey of more than 200 produce managers. And one of the findings that stood out to me, 43% said they had never had training on managing people. And another finding that caught my attention, 35% said no one from their company had ever had any conversations with them about their career path. Now, I wanted to get Dave's perspective essentially on what it looks like to be a great manager, to put the people on your team in the best positions to succeed. And on the flip side, I also wanted to ask him how, you know, if you're someone whose manager is is honestly just way too busy with their day-to-day to think about anybody else's career trajectory, how someone in that situation can still you know, kind of help help their manager give them what they need to to continue advancing. Now, last but not least, Dave is my dad. So you might think that means that I'm a little biased about the level of his expertise, but let me assure you that I have actually greatly undersold his many achievements, much less the unbelievable person that he is. So without further ado, Dad, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. Wow. Well, thank you for having me, Ashley. That's quite a lead up and uh, look forward to the conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, so I wanted to start by asking you, who was the best manager you ever have? Or to to avoid you having to call somebody out by name, when you think about the best manager you ever had, what what made that person awesome to work for? Uh, Well, I think there's a couple traits and I can think of, I don't know that I've had a best manager, but I will say that I've had multiples um, who had strengths perhaps in different areas uh, that they really excelled in. And I've also had some uh, pretty tough uh, one or two very harsh managers. And I always figured you just had to separate uh, the message from the messenger, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So even if there was something I didn't uh, particularly uh, appreciate or care for in terms of how the message was administered. I always just tried to uh, subtract the emotion out of it, generally think about it for an overnight or if it was on a Friday for the weekend, and then just try to, excuse me, and then just try to process and think about, okay, uh, was it a fair criticism? Would it, was it a fair critique? And if so, um, how am I going to address it and what am I going to do about it to move forward? And then the second thing I'll just dovetail in that very briefly is I think also there's always something you can take away from what people do really well. And then also maybe, you know, some takeaways for things that if you're ever in a similar situation, you probably wouldn't want to emulate. I think both those are are valuable. So learning from our mistakes is a, you know, a part of management. <laughs> but if you can learn from others' mistakes and then make sure you don't replicate it five or 10 years down the road, and I don't say that critically, we we all make mistakes. I just mean sometimes you can learn from what you see where others have 
maybe things that don't go as planned as well as mm-hmm. others who have great success. And for sure, you know, I've maybe slightly borrowed some of those learnings as well. Sure. So when you think of learnings that you've borrowed, those those things that when your manager did them, you thought, well, shoot, someday when I'm in that position, I'm definitely going to do that. What are a few of those things that come to mind? Uh, a couple of things I can just think of, at least off the top of my head. Um, one is that I can appreciate somebody who has a very direct communication style. And what I mean by that is as an employee um, and also as a manager, the two things we're always looking to eliminate is ambiguity. Yeah. <laughs> and so, again, even if maybe the message um, isn't the way that I would appreciate it being communicated, if I understand the message and if it's clear and if it comes in the form where I say, okay, I've got a very clear directive here um, on what to do and what actions are expected, uh, that to me is better than the alternative which is long discussions where at the end of 30 minutes, you're not exactly sure what you just heard, much less what your authority is to do next or how to proceed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another uh, takeaway, another learning I had very early in my career was an individual who pulled me aside once and said, hey, Dave, um, you're spending too much time trying to make this thing perfect. And the the thing he was describing uh, was a sales plan and forecast. And his point was, listen, the information's always changing. Quit wasting that act, that extra 10%. Get it to 90%, and we got to fail forward and move forward. And don't worry about the extra effort and energy. It's never worth it to expend that incremental energy. You could be spending your time uh, much more efficiently. And so, of course, wanting to be detailed, wanting to be as accurate as I possibly could, um, that seemed to me to be counterintuitive. But the more I thought about it, it's absolutely true. You, you do what you can do with what you've got. You get it as close as you can. And then the, the massive amounts of effort and energy for that incremental 10 percent, almost never worth it. At least that's mm-hmm. what I've experienced. Well, and I think probably, Dad, your line of work dovetails a little bit even with produce in that things are moving quickly you don't really have the luxury of time to get everything up to like you said maybe your own personal would be ideal standards of 100 percent because you got to be on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and, and you're addressing customer things over here and you're making the plan for the next you know period or day or whatever it you know will be over here that there's there's got to be a, a very intentional balancing. It sounds like of, you know, getting this to as best it can possibly be while preparing adequately and moving adequately into the next thing on the list. Uh, I, I believe there is, and I'll I'll say there's probably one caveat also to uh, what I just said. So the the quote that I that I've always remembered from a book that I read, I think I was in uh, maybe sixth grade. So how, how old are you, sixth grader, 12 years old or something <laughs> like this, I guess? Yes. And the legendary basketball coach at UCLA, John Wooden, um, was a man of many talents outside of coaching basketball. And one of the things was his writings, which I had read. And one of his mantras was, be quick, but don't hurry. Mm. And so, um, again, it kind of sounds like a contradiction in terms, uh, but it really is true. And the other thing that kind of dovetails, I think, again, in with this is 
with critical decisions. And that's, I think, the separation point. What is the critical from what is just simply urgent Mm -hmm. or time sensitive? But in the critical decisions, most of us always have more time than we think we have when it does come to making big decisions. Mm -hmm. And so what what I've tried to learn is when to take that extra time and make sure to try to get it as right as I can, realizing that in most cases, I mean, I guess it's different if you're an emergency room doctor and somebody comes in and every second counts. But in our business, generally, that's not the term. You've generally got at least overnight to make a decision. Sometimes you have to make it within four or five hours. But a lot of times, you know, you do have more time than you think to work with. Mm-hmm. And so just kind of balancing those two, I think it's applicable to, quite honestly, decisions we make in business or working for a charitable organization or obviously in our in our personal time as well. And to go back a little bit to sort of management style, one of the things that I, as I alluded to at the top, I found on this recent produce manager survey was that quite a few folks had never had their supervisor or somebody else at their company talk to them about, hey, what what are you looking to do longer term? Do you like what you're doing right now? What are the roles could you see yourself in in the future? And Obviously, every manager, as as you detailed, has the day-to-day things that they're working on, but also to keep in mind the the midterm or the longer-term things of building your team. How did you go about trying to be intentional about those longer-term, midterm things as far as career pathing for your team in addition to the day-to-day things? Well, I think um, probably to sum it up, I, I view it as a shared responsibility. Okay. And and what I mean by that is, I think the initial responsibility is of the manager, and looking at the talents on of the members of the team, uh, trying to understand, you know, where where people are really strong and how you can play to their strong suit and the things that they do well and what that might look like in terms of their contribution to the overall team. Um, and I think the manager needs to be actively involved in leading that discussion. And it, this is nothing new, obviously, but it's 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 not just those twice a year on the midterm and the annual appraisal. Um, there should be nothing that comes up during those discussions that's a surprise to the employee. Mm-hmm. If if we're engaged with our teams and our people, that's just a recap of what they already knew and what their mm-hmm. expectations already were. But I also think that there's there is. Um, I don't know if it's a common feeling, but I, I think it seems like it's more of a feeling now than it was when I first uh, got in business, where the employees are expecting the employer to kind of chart out what that path is. And I don't subscribe to that theory, in all honesty. And that's what I mean. It's a shared responsibility. And I think that the manager can make known you know, to the members of their team, hey, look, um, I'll guide you as best I can. I'm going to let you know about the opportunities that are available. I'm going to commit, um, you know, my time as a resource so that on a regular cadence, you've got an open forum for discussion. And it'll be two ways because you might be telling me what you need from this. And, uh, you know, maybe there's some things I'm going to tell you that that we need to see from you. But you got to take accountability for your own career. So if there's places you want to go, if there's things that you want to achieve, you've got to have that you know, in your mind, you got to be able to verbalize that to your manager. And then collectively, we can talk about it and maybe subject, uh, discuss some paths on 
how you can take that path forward to get to what your ultimate goal is. And so I don't I don't think it's works if it's all one or all the other. That the manager surely can't lay out a plan for somebody that's, you know, incumbent upon us as an employee, all of us, if there's a place that we want to go within the company. And then the flip side is true as well. The employee's got to have guidance on what are the opportunities and what are the other areas of the company that, you know, could be a good fit for them. So um, the biggest thing that I just see or that I always struggle with was, and I've never managed a huge team. The most I've had is uh, 13 or 14 direct reports. Mm-hmm. But even with that small of a team, there can be a lot of needs and requirements. Plus, of course, uh, you know, you're sandwiched in the middle. You're reporting to yeah. the CEO and then you've got people that report to you. And so trying to find I always found trying to find the time and make sure that I wasn't shorting them was was my biggest challenge and area that, quite frankly, that, you know, I whiffed on from time to time. Um but that's that's a real key area because they have to know that you've got skin in their game and their mm-hmm. game is their life and their career. Mm-hmm. And how how much of a difference did you find that that made when you had because I would imagine as if I were in in the shoes of that person, someone on your team and I was regularly getting conversations about hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that in five years, I'd like to be here. What are the things that I would need to work on to develop to try to get there? I feel an investment and it's going to be, I'm going to be more uncertain about leaving for somewhere else for more money or just something new or whatever the case is, if I feel like I've got an investment and quite frankly, an advocate in my manager. So I would think as folks are having conversations on not only recruitment, but retention, that that, that could be a real asset. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that to be true. I think, um, I mean, every every survey and report, I think that's out there, at least it seems like the majority of them always claim that financial reasons are not the primary reasons that people depart uh, one job and move to another. Mm-hmm. And that's And that's probably, you know, maybe it's not true as often as it's purported to be. I mean, if somebody comes to you and they say, hey, we're going to pay you 30% more, to do a similar job and you love the industry you're in and it's an upward trajectory. I mean, I, I think most people are going to jump at that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the flip side is people will also stay, at least I've seen people also stay in a company where they feel like they're plugged in and connected, where they feel like their manager, he or she knows who they are and um, you know what their goals are and is committed to helping them you know, do whatever they can to help in the process of achieving those goals. Um, I think also retention has a lot to do with when employees are powered to make decisions that affect their day-to-day activities. And it doesn't even have to be some huge, you know, threshold in terms of a dollar amount, but it can be just a, a sense of empowering the employee where, look, putting you in this position to do this job, you've got expertise in this area, or we've trained you to have expertise in this area, you're closer to the customer as a manager than I ever am. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right there on the front lines. If you wanna talk about it, if you wanna ask for input, I'm always here for you. But 
you've you've got the go switch to make a decision and move forward within this set of framework or parameters. You don't have to wait for me. You don't have to wait for the company. You don't have to have the endless approval cycles, all these things that drive people absolutely out of their mind. <laughs> and, at, and at some point, people say, you know, enough already of this. I I could do so much more if they, you know, cut me free and, and let me manage the business. And you know, whether that's a produce manager, whether that's someone working for a produce manager in a store, whether that's a sales rep working for a manufacturer that has some latitude where he can respond quickly, you know, mm-hmm. to customer needs, especially with customer problems, that can be a feeling where you feel like you've really got at least a little bit of control in the say so over how, how you take care of people and how you take care of the customer. Mm-hmm. And how, what would be sort of your philosophy on how to strike the balance between maintaining some consistency of approach and process and all those kind of things? And then on the other hand, like you said, creating some leeway and some ability for that person to have ownership and make some decisions. How do you sort of delineate between things that should be in each bucket? So, just from a simplistic standpoint, I just look at the skills and the capabilities of the members of the team. And so if somebody is a more senior or seasoned individual, and also if they've got a track record where they've proven they make the smart decision, they make the right call, they don't do something, of course, it jeopardizes um, the company. They don't throw the whole kitchen sink at a problem when you know not everything um, needs to be tossed that way all at once. Um, but even junior people on the team, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be allowed to make decisions, at least in, in my in my thought process, you just let them make decisions of a different order of magnitude. And so, uh, and that's how we learn. That's how all of us have, I mean, I've made, I can't count how many decisions I've made that did not go well, but that's how you learn from it. And you get, you know, your manager cracks back on you and then you're like, okay, that I don't want that to happen again. <laughs> and so you learn from it. And then if they, you know, trust you to try again, it really has you thinking, all right, last time, I don't want it to go like that again. I'm going to spend a bit more, you know, time. Um, I might check and get input from some people, maybe who have been here a bit longer, um, but then I'm going to make the call again. And this one I'm determined is going to have a better outcome. Mm-hmm. So I just think you look at the team and then, um, you know, spending time with people when it doesn't go as they had hoped is a critical part of the learning process. And you're not, um, it's not a situation where it's really a negative critique on the employee. It's just a critique on the process they went through to arrive at the action or the decision that they made. Mm-hmm. That That's all it is. And so that's the only way that, you know, it will help them learn and move forward and at the same time, if you're a manager and you've been doing this for a while, you've made a lot of these mistakes that you're trying to help people avoid. And that's always the way that I would try to coach them. Hey, look, I've stepped in that pothole. I've gone off in the ditch before. Listen, l- let me just share with you how to avoid this. There's no use in both of us making the same mistake. Yeah. <laughs> most people most people can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, and I'm glad that you brought up that that idea of empowerment, because that was another thing that kind of stood out to me on the survey is I essentially had asked folks, you know, how much leeway do you have to make decisions in your department? And on the one hand, it was, hey, I basically get to run it like it's my own business. And on the other end was, 
eh, most of the decisions are made for us. So we basically are just supposed to execute on what we're told we're doing. And then in the middle was, hey, most of the assortment is determined. Like we're not selecting most of what's coming in, but they encourage us to be creative in our merchandising. You know, our suggestions are are solicited and, and listened to. And the folks who were in those two buckets where they had at least some leeway to make decisions what we found was all the different measures of job satisfaction that we looked at were all higher. You know, how much do you enjoy your job? How long are you going to stay? Would you recommend the job to a friend? Even things like, uh, how do you feel? Uh, do you have the resources you need to succeed? Which, I mean, that that's subject to interpretation, right? Kind of like those other questions. But I thought, man, it sounds like even the view on, do I have what I need to do my job? Even the outlook on that, it sounded like went up when people felt like they had some sense of control and ownership and ability to make things happen of their own accord a little bit. Yeah. And I think that would be what we would expect because I, I mean, I understand there are times when it's, it's dictated and mandated from the top down, we are going to do this. And that happens in every organization and in, in, um, in a lot of cases, probably for very, very good reason. However, where there is the opportunity for the folks on the team who are closer to the customer to have input into decisions or even make their own decisions, I mean, let me ask you, if somebody is making their own decision, are they going to fight harder to carry that out and do everything they possibly can to make sure it succeeds versus one that's mandated and handed down to them and they had no chance for input into? It's it's pretty simple there that yeah. people are going to, I mean, a lot of times they'll they'll kill themselves trying to make something work if it's something that they proposed or if it's something that they recommended versus, well, you know, it came down, the edict came down, this is what we're going to do. It doesn't mean they won't try hard, but they're not going to lay it all on the line like they would if it's coming from them. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, you know, most people aren't going to recommend a course of action they think would hurt their employer, you know, would hurt their career, would be bad for the customer. And if we believe that our, our frontline folks being closest to the customers are listening, paying attention, have the customer in mind in their best interest, and they've got some parameters to work with, then we ought to expect better results if the people closer are having at least you know a material say-so in decisions that affect the customer or the customer experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious too, when when you would have conversations with your team members on on you know whether it's reviewing decisions they've made or or talking through you know career path or all these different things again i i know that you always had you know sales quotas to meet that you were ultimately responsible for and there's lots of customer interface and things like that how much of your time would you say you spent really like taking care of your people and focusing on like your, the members of your sales team versus all the other stuff that you are responsible for. What, how, maybe what was your ideal split? And then maybe what did that look like in reality? Um, well, the time with the people was never enough uh, <laughs> just to be, to be candid, but how I tried to compensate for that were a lot of 3 a.m. wake-up calls taking the 5.30 flight out, and I would try to spend Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday every week in the field. And so the reason I did that is we'd be traveling together, visiting uh, customers during the day, 
And then in the evening, my, my plan was we'd go out for a dinner for two nights. And that was time we'd talk about, uh, well, things that were important to them. And so in some cases, there were family issues that were making it difficult to execute their job performance. In other situations, it was talking about career path. And in other situations, you're talking about you know, what those short-term and mid-term goals are for the year, how we're tracking to the plan. Um, hey, what can I do to help you um, with this opportunity with this customer? Is there something internally within the company that you need that I can help you with? And so I tried to make up for it by the days that I was with them in the field. I'm, I was there for a full day. So yeah. we, you know, some days it'd be 15 hours. We'd be together in the rental car or on the plane or at dinner and we get to the next city. And so that's how, since these, the, all the folks were remote that were being managed, I had to, I had to count on them to make decisions. Most of their working time during the week when I wasn't, you know, down the hall in an office where they could walk down or where I could go down to see them. Um, and then the second thing, which kind of runs counter, and I'm not saying this is the right way to think about it. There's a lot of different uh, theories on this, but I would spend proportionally more time with the upper level performers because I always felt there was a better return on investment for the company. And so a lot of people um, ascribe to the theory that you spend more time with the people who who aren't at their target or aren't a plan. And and I'm not saying that you ignore those people, quite, quite the opposite. You have to spend time and you have to give them guidance. But if you have somebody who's already generating $10 million a year, but could potentially bring in $15 million a year, and you have somebody at five that's struggling to do that, there is a there is a finite amount of time we have, obviously, to spend with our people. And so I believe that you do everything that you can to get that person to rise to where they need to be. Um, but there does come a certain point in time where if that's not going to be possible, for, for whatever reason, then as a manager, it's your responsibility either to find something or look at other opportunities within the company. And if those aren't available, the next step is obviously transitioning them out of the company and finding somebody who can come in to do the job. Because it's not fair to the team if you keep people on that aren't able to perform at the level that the company has to have people perform so the whole thing can go forward. Mm -hmm. And so that's the that's kind of the tricky part of it is you don't want that to happen, but the employee has got to want it more than the manager. It, this is in any, yeah. we could be talking sports or business. We could, we could be talking in anything. The, you can't want something for somebody else badly enough for them to succeed if they're struggling. They have to want it for themselves. Mm -hmm. The manager, even as badly as you want that to be true, you can't affect that to the same extent that they can. And so um, I can remember a couple discussions with people where I've said, look, um, you're, you're right there on the cusp of where I'm going to have to make a very difficult decision. Now, I will do everything I possibly can to help you, but you're going to have to put a plan together. We're going to have to talk about the time and resource that you know, where you need me and how I can help you and what your what your asks are and the things that you think would be beneficial. And then I'll do everything I can. I'll travel with you. I'll strategize with you. You can call me on Saturday morning. You know, all that is fine. 
but you're going to have to make a decision how badly you want this. And what I've seen is the people who came from being on performance plan to being at President's Club, it wasn't because of me. It was because that's how badly they wanted to succeed once they understood what their obligation really was to the rest of the folks on the team. And then you have some people who go the other way and they give up when it looks like it's going to be, you know, a sacrifice and a lot of work to get to where they need to be. They're just not willing to put that in. Mm -hmm. And the manager can't make that decision for them either. It's you can treat them both the same, but I've seen time and time again where people will go one way or the other and desire and attitude is almost always a differentiating uh, factor. At least what I've seen a lot of times just has nothing to do with talent. It's just simply who says, you know what, I'm going to do this come heck or high water. I'm not going to be denied. I'm going to do this and I'm going to enlist help to get to where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's the coolest thing to me about being a manager is when you see the people on the team that you're accountable for succeed. There's no better feeling as a manager than seeing them have success. It always it always beats out and trumps, at least in my opinion, anything that's that's come along for me. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the the conversations you're just describing those are not easy conversations. What? What were the experiences, or I don't know if you ever had any training, but what helped you learn how to navigate those diff- difficult conversations well? And as as you mentioned earlier, with with clarity that that really is maybe even the most important thing in those conversations. Well, you mentioned a big one uh, right there a moment ago, which was clarity. And from that, if there is a if there is a performance or a personnel issue to address, really just sticking to that topic. And the comfortable thing is to ask about the kids and how's this going and how's that going. But quite honestly, all that does is waste their time and it really dilutes, I think, the message from what needs to be discussed. Um, And I think people appreciate on a professional level, if you get to the point and you're crisp and you're concise on why you're having the discussion, I always told them, hey, listen, there's going to be a time for you to give me your feedback as well. And then the other thing is, with very few exceptions, I always did it face-to-face. So I always got on a plane and flew halfway across or all the way across the country and sat down and did it face-to-face because I wanted to show that I do care. Otherwise, I wouldn't be investing my time in this. But also, it, I think it underlies the um, you know, the specific issue at hand. It has to be addressed. And I think just... You know, the communication is better when you're sitting across the table from somebody versus a video call or a mobile phone that keeps cutting in and out. And I just think it's I think it's more respectful, quite honestly, to the employee. Um, and I've had people even who didn't appreciate the message say, well, th- hey, thanks for thanks for showing up and looking me in the eye and telling me this. And that's mm-hmm. that's just I know other managers probably have different ways and I'm not saying they're not effective, but that's just how I always chose to address it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned earlier that it is it's all it's always more comfortable to talk start any conversation about the dogs <laughs> and the kids and the weather and all those different things, sure. right? How did you that's another thing I'm interested in, just sort of from a management perspective generally, how how do you balance being empathetic and caring and you know, you you want your employees, like you said, to know that you actually care and to try and cut them 
slack as as truly needed when people have sick kids or things that sure. happen or things like that. How I, I guess my question is, how do you balance trying to be empathetic, accommodating in an appropriate way, but still it's like, hey, th- this is the business we're in. These are the requirements. Sometimes those two things are in conflict. How how have you been able to kind of coach people through those successfully? And and were there situations where it, it wasn't a it just wasn't a fit? Well, I mean, there there are certainly situations where it's not a fit. And um, a gentleman that I worked for a very long time ago, uh, who was from Japan, very very smart guy. And uh, I had an employee that it wasn't working out and I was going to have to to terminate them. And, you know, he said, David, you know, you must understand, you know, this is at least half your fault. And I was a fairly young manager. I think I was maybe 30 at the time or 29, something like this. I'm like, half my fault. How, How can this be my fault? And he said, because you're the one that hired him and you saw something in him. Otherwise, you shouldn't have brought him to the company. Oh, shit. And so I and so I. Uh, yeah, that one kind of stunned me and stopped me in my tracks. And I thought about it and I thought, you know what, he, he's right that that's a true statement. Now there's obligations on the employee side as well, but it starts with, again, the manager We're ultimately accountable. And so, um, you know, when I, when I look back on it, there is a balancing act, um, without a doubt, absolutely. People have all kinds of pushes and pulls in their lives outside of their job, and we have to be, and the word I'll use here is we have to be aware of that. Um, we don't really necessarily need to be accommodating to that, but we have to be aware of it because, I mean, in in any business, you are paying somebody to do a job. And so, you know, if, um, if their kids have to be at school at a certain time or they have sports leagues they're traveling to, or I've heard all kinds of things. I have dogs that can't go in a kennel. I've heard all of these reasons why somebody can't be where they're supposed to be. And of course, as a manager, our job is to say, hey, I I like dogs too. I can appreciate that you have dogs, but um, welcome the dogs to a new experience and introducing this thing called a kennel. It won't kill the dogs. Um, You've got a job to do, come on. And so there's a lot of things I think that we, that we say, well, it's only this time, or it's only that time, or it's only on Friday afternoons, or it's only this, or it's only that. But the bottom line is, as an employer, the employer has a right to expect people are working when they're supposed to be working. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's clearly issues where, with like the the illness of a spouse or something of this, that's a totally different, you know, type of situation. But, um, I just think being honest and being direct with people and uh, it's like, well, then you're going to have to make, I mean, generally I would just put it back on, you know, my employee and I'd say, well, um, you know, what arrangements are you going to make so that you can be at your post when you're supposed to be? Mm. Um, And that's, that's a fair question for the employer to ask, because if you think about it, if you're making exceptions here and there and you've got a, a team of 14 or 15 people, you can't even keep up with all the exceptions. And you've got to be able to count on people being where they're at when they're supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. You just have to. Well, and it sounds like 
because I would think obviously there there are things that come up that are a surprise or out of nowhere or they're one time things or that sort of thing. I I guess it's it's a it seems like a hard it, it seems like a hard line to be on like what you know what do you try and and say okay yeah I understand that your wife and your three kids are all have the stomach bug and you have to go home and and help out right or like how it's, yeah I'm stumbling over the question terribly terribly badly here but. <laughs> Well, I think the other thing to look for is, is it a one-off type of situation or is there some kind of a pattern or consistency that you see over a period of time? Mm -hmm. And and generally what you see is it's a one-off from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, what, what I look for is if I see it happening here and here and here, and then what that shows me is that, that that's actually a pattern. And that, that shows me that, um, you know, work doesn't, Work doesn't have to happen all the time at the same time, but it does have to happen most of the time at the same time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when when I see things that perpetually interrupt and don't make work convenient, it's like, okay, well then maybe maybe there's other things that are more important to you in your life than the job, and that's okay, but we're paying for the job right here. <laughs> and so, you know, within the parameters of the job, then you got to be accountable and you've got to be present. Mm -hmm. And the job of the employer is not to accommodate in all these different circumstances. I know that may be the thing or the coming thing now, but I'm an old school guy <laughs> and we and we call it work instead of play for a reason because it's real work expected to get after it, you know, during the time you're supposed to be there and have your focus on the job at hand. And clearly on the customers who are paying all of our salaries. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I've always looked at it is we're all ultimately accountable to a customer at some point, whether it's a patient in a hospital, whether it's somebody buying fresh produce, or whether it's somebody buying a manufacturer's product that's not performing as it was expected to. Mm -hmm. We're all accountable to the customer. And we can't do that if management and the rest of the team are not agreed and locked in step on how we're going to proceed and do that. So mm -hmm. the responsibility is on the managing team to push that down to the field, but then without buying from the field, without engaging them and letting them, like we talked about earlier, uh, make some of the calls. Um, it's really tough if, you know, one group does it at the expense or without the participation of the other. Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like, too, when we talked a minute ago about sometimes it's just not a good fit. And so I'd imagine that that is part of not a fun part of the role of a manager, but something also where, like you mentioned, if there do seem to be recurring things where the job is not getting done, you know, as as expectations have been laid out for it to be done, you try and have those conversations from a place of, you know, it, it doesn't seem like this what's required of this fits with what what your responsibilities are in the rest of your life right like you you've managed teams of folks who are supposed to travel the country you know on a weekly basis selling well if if travel is a big problem for someone then that's just never going to be a fit right so i would imagine that's the other thing is as a manager when you identify hey that based on what we need here it doesn't seem like this is working well 
let's think about other things that would be options maybe within the company or different things that, you know, we could send you to pursue elsewhere. Cause I, I guess that's the, that's a, a hard part of being a manager too, is identifying when it's not a fit and then trying to kind of transition people out, you know, as, as best and respectfully as possible. Yeah. And I think it's the other thing is once you've identified it, move on it quickly. And so, um, and I've made the mistake, I hate to admit it, but I've made the mistake multiple times where I've given too much of a leeway or too much runway for people. And then when I thought, you know, back about it after six months, I'm like, what was I doing there? I knew in my gut at the 90 days ago, based on what I had seen, that probably the chances were highly unlikely, you know, that the performance or the behaviors were going to change. I, I sh- it would have been better for the employee and better for the company that I'm accountable for um, if I would have taken action when I should have, rather than giving it another quarter, for example, to see mm-hmm. if it, you know, if the ship could be righted. And and honestly, if you don't see any reason why the ship could be righted, then the other alternative is the ship is going to the bottom of the ocean and, <laughs> and you don't want to be on that ship when that happens. And so, um, and I, you know, and I have had a couple situations where I did wait and the, the person did a course correction and they were all in and they, like I mentioned earlier, and I've seen this multiple times where they performed phenomenally well, and then that set them on a whole different trajectory in their career and the performance continued. And so I wish I had something really smart. I can tell you to know the difference between the two, but I don't, <laughs> but, I, but I, I do know, like if I was rewinding the clock 30 years to do it all over again, addressing those as soon as you see it, I think for any manager is one of those things that can feel a little bit uncomfortable, especially if you're young. Mm-hmm. But the longer that a behavior is tolerated or a performance is accepted that's below the necessary performance that the company deems is is the, the minimum bar, the longer it's tolerated, you just get more of it. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that's the fault of the manager, not of the employee. The employee might know that they're not getting it cut. Or, or they might think that their performance is okay because, hey, nobody said anything to me. And so, mm-hmm. again, that falls on the manager to have that conversation in a respectful way, in a timely way. And then the last thing I'll just say is giving specifics on where the targeted areas of improvement need to be made. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't force somebody to improve, but you can say, hey, look, here's the two areas I've that you got to zero in on. And if you lock in and execute against these two things, uh, we'll be having a very different discussion six months from now. But if this could continue to go on, well, then we're going to have to have a different discussion six months from now. And it's probably not one you're going to enjoy. And I think Mm -hmm. it's just, you level with people and you tell them that. And that way, if you do have to have that follow-up discussion and it's the end of the relationship, I, I had one gentleman say, Hey, look, Dave, um, I don't like this, but you took me aside and you told me six months ago exactly what I needed to do, and I didn't get it done. And the guy looked at me and goes, hey, this is on me. You told me, and I just I just didn't do it. Oof. But he, he did appreciate the fact that I didn't saw him off of the knees half a year earlier. He just had all the good intentions to to address the points, but just either didn't or wouldn't or couldn't. Mm-hmm. but he wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't surprised. 
and he was given the opportunity. So if we don't give the employee the opportunity, again, I say that's on management. Mm -hmm. But if the employee is given the opportunity and if you invest in them, a lot of them will make that turn and they'll they'll mm -hmm. understand the sense of urgency that you're looking for. Um, and so, you know, you just try to do it in a way that um, provides whatever motivation you can in the most positive sense that you can, mm -hmm. but not telling people where they stand is not doing them any favors at all yeah. whatsoever. It might be more comfortable for you as a manager, but it sure doesn't help the people on your team. Mm -hmm. Well, I know we're over time, Deb, but I'll, I'll ask you just one follow up on that because I know because I've seen over the years when if you guys have had an empty slot on the team well then that that slot doesn't just get to go unattended for however long it takes to hire the next person that's you're doing that job in addition to your job now and that sure. sort of thing so when you're a manager and you know you have an issue on the team right somebody who doesn't really like it or it's not a good fit and they're not doing it well <laughs> How I don't know if it's it's a balance or you just suck it up and you do it. But when you you need people, you need manpower, and even if everybody's not to the level you would like, is it better to have a smaller team and everybody's stretched a little bit, or is it better to have hey these are the bodies we really need? Eventually, you know, we know that that Joe isn't really it doesn't really like this or isn't really doing this correctly or whatever. Eventually, he needs to go and we need to replace him. I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, manpower versus everybody's bought in and committed, but everybody's maybe stretched thin. So um, of all the people that are um, of a management management, excuse me, capacity listening to your podcast, they've all experienced this before. This will be new <laughs> to absolutely none of them. So they've all been in this situation before. Um but the, I think the quick sketch is if somebody isn't uh, willing or able to, you know, carry their weight, so to speak, as a member of the team, uh, I mentioned earlier, it's not fair to the team to continue carrying people like that. And at the same time, it can also bring down and have other negative effects on the team. Yeah. Because typically, if people aren't performing uh, up to the level of expectation, they're not happy. And it follows that people who aren't happy, generally when they're talking to other people, the team don't, don't tend to have positive and uplifting discussions in a lot of cases. Yeah. And so uh, I always thought we're better off being down a headcount, or in some cases, the company has to cut back because of budgetary reasons. All of your listeners who are managers have faced this before, where it's like the person hasn't even done anything um, in terms of a sub performance, but the company says, hey, we need seven people in the department according to the budget and where we think we're going to be numbers wise this year, not nine or not eight. Mm -hmm. And so in those situations, I would go to the remaining people on the team and say, hey, I got to lean on you a bit more. I need you to stretch a bit and maybe learn about something that you don't aren't comfortable with or haven't done before, but I believe you can do it. We need you to help in this area. I'm going to pitch in over here and cover this territory myself, um, carry a bag as well as managing the team. And so I think there's opportunities there for growth for the other people that, you know, that you do ask to do more. Mm -hmm. um, because the other thing is it makes everybody allocate and just be absolutely ruthless with where they spend their time. Mm -hmm. And so it really makes you measure, hey, can I afford to take this conference call for 30 minutes? Do I have time in my day? 
with my expanded you know, responsibilities, is this something I absolutely have to be on? Or is this something I just say, I'm sorry, I, I just, I do not have any more hours in the day. I'm going to have to pass on this one and read the notes from the call. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a tempting thing to bring somebody along, even if they're not contributing to the amount that, you know, again, is the requirement of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the easy thing to do. But the hard thing to do is generally the right thing to do, which is we all got to do a bit more. And as a manager, you got to spend every waking hour figuring out how can I recruit and find someone to backfill that position uh, either now or when the budget freeze back up, mm-hmm. do all my homework right now, have that all ready to go. So that as soon as we can flip the switch, we do that. And I had, I had one uh, CEO that I work for who, uh, who was reaming me out one day because he said I wasn't moving quick enough on a replacement hire. And he made it very clear how quickly he wanted me to move. And I'll, I'll leave all the expletives off of your podcast. <laughs> and, but, you know, it's one of those things I didn't like the message but that was a Friday at six o'clock and I started doing interviews Saturday with people on the phone. Wow. <laughs> but I'm not waiting till Monday. No, I am. I got the message loud and clear. I need to do a bit more. I'm running all these different ways. I've got a headcount that's been open for just a little bit, but he wants to see it filled. All right. Mm-hmm. Not waiting till Monday. I'm starting Saturday morning. And when I called people who were looking to change jobs and I said, Hey, it's uh it's Dave here. I know it's Saturday morning, but I've got some time left here on the weekend and I've got a lot working. Would you mind uh, talking to me and we'll do an interview later on today on Saturday? The very first uh, woman that I called said, oh, absolutely, I'm, I'll talk to you on Saturday. And she was aggressive and wanted a chance to get a opportunity for the interview. And so there's just a lot of things, a lot of times that you know I hadn't considered doing interviews on a Saturday. And sometimes time isn't on your side. And so I've, I've since then, I've met people for breakfast interviews at seven in the morning at a coffee shop. I've met people, um, like I said, on Saturdays. I've done uh, dinner meetings with an HR folk, you know, and we sit down with. So there's there are some ways to stretch and do that. But, um, you know, the manager can never, ever win and the company can't win if the team's supporting. I mean, that's really who it revolves around is the team. It does, it does not revolve around the manager. The manager is a contributing member of the team. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if an NFL team doesn't perform, for example, they don't whack all the people on the team. They get rid of the head coach. <laughs> yep. And that's that's the beauty and that's the tough thing about managing is mm-hmm. it's your job to make it go, but you're not the big deal. It's not all about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I know I said that was going to be the last one, but just because you mentioned Saturday mornings and breakfast meetings, and I know in in retail, a similar thing where it's not a standard schedule. There are expectations on your time outside of the normal nine to five. And on a personal note here, I remember growing up, of course, you, you traveled every week, but I never felt like you were not present or out of the loop. And so I, I think it might be just interesting for people to hear from you how did you balance work with still investing time in in family and relationships because there's there's never a shortage of things to do for work there's never a, a point at which everything is complete and I feel like you manage that 
in a in a way that I, I find enviable. <laughs> and so what, how did you navigate that over the years? Well, I think um, actually between the family and the work, I think it's really one and the same. And so, you know, you you may well remember that I would call home every night. Yep. <laughs> so whether I was in Japan or Taiwan or New Jersey or wherever it was, I would call home every night and I would talk to you and your sisters and your mom. Regardless of where I was, it's like this is something you fit in your day, just like you do all your work related stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece is further. Um, I know some of your people on the podcast. I I see their businesses when I travel and they've got markets or uh, stores in various cities throughout the regions in the Northeast and the central part of the country. And I'm sure there's managers on the on your podcast you've had as guests who are facing the same thing. When you're spread out um, and you're managing remote locations or remote staff, it's the same thing. You just, I, I, to me, email is a confirmation tool. It's never a collaboration or a communication tool. And so even in my job day, I pick up the phone and I call people. I don't drop them a Teams message. I don't send them an email. I pick <laughs> up the phone and I say, hey, just checking in, see how you're doing, what's going on, anything I can help you with. Um, anything coming up, you know, in the windshield ahead that, you know, looks like it might be an opportunity or a challenge that we're going to need to talk about. And then I, I have a hard time restraining myself, but I try to stop talking and then just wait and just listen and see what comes out. And sometimes people say, no, I'm, I'm all set. I appreciate you checking in. Everything's rolling along. And other times I'll stop and wait. And then the person will talk for 30 minutes nonstop. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff happening or changes or, you know, things that had changed from the last, you know, two or three weeks ago when I was last with them in person. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think that's also getting rarer and rarer today yeah. because of the mobile phone and the text message, but that thing, that gadget actually does make a call that people can hear your voice on the other <laughs> end, but very few people ever use it for that anymore. And so I try to avoid the text messages, except Maybe if I'm on a plane, it's getting ready to take off. Okay. But other than that, I I just think that you learn a lot more when you pick up the phone and call people. Just like you do when you pick up the phone and you, you call your family, you hear about what happened during the day or what's going on at home. And I just, I don't, I don't really think it's any different from your, your work family yeah. that, you know, you treat in the same way. Just ask a lot of questions and give folks the opportunity to catch up. Yep, you don't know if you don't ask. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dad, like I like I've said a couple of times, I know we went past the uh the time that I had allotted, so I appreciate you hanging with me a little bit longer here. I'll ask you my my classic wrap up. Anything I should be asking that I'm not or anything that you want to add before we wrap up? Um, I didn't have anything that popped in my mind, but I just did just now. So okay. so two quick so two quick things. Um, one of the things I th- I think has helped me, I, and I I don't know that I could prove this, and it might not be for everybody, but I think um, taking time to read about industries outside of the one in which we operate in, and I I don't really find management books all that fascinating, but just reading about different industries and the problems and the challenges, 
I think does tend to widen the lens or the aperture in the lens, if you will, and let you get a view of things maybe right outside the here and now that all of us get kind of wrapped around the axle on, uh, you know, in our day to day. Yeah. And then uh, the last thing is a gentleman, one of the gentlemen that I researched, and he's a he's 92 years old and he's a custom car builder. <laughs> so he's an old hot rodder and he's been building custom cars uh, since the 19, uh, I guess, 1950s. Wow. And I'm like, man, what keeps that guy going? He's 92 years old. He's welding. He's cutting metal. He's bending steel. He's building engines. And then I noticed, um, I saw a picture of him, and the shirt he had on said, every day is a school day. And so I've always tried to keep that uh, frame of mind that really every day is a school day. When you when you stop learning, you're dead. you know. And so there's always more to learn and more to take in. And I just find it interesting looking at, like I said, looking at different parts of the business that don't necessarily have to do with what I'm doing. And that's kind of an area to draw inspiration from and also just just to learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the only two things I can think of. Probably nothing of value there, but that's just what popped in my mind. So, Well, I think it's very valuable and I appreciate you you thinking through the question and, and giving, giving me those extra, extra two cents. And um, yeah, just can't thank you enough, Dad, for for coming on. You know, I have admired you for for my entire life for many, many, many reasons. And um, you have taken, you have always made made time for all my calls, whether it's wanting to talk sports or since I started my business. Hey, Dad, how should I have this conversation? Or I'm really thinking about this. What are other things that I should consider? So. I, I am delighted to get to to have this discussion with you today. I appreciate your candor. I know these things are are not easy in in practice, and so they're not always easy even to discuss, especially with you know the the emphasis obviously is, is so much on the employee today because it's a tight labor market, you know, versus mm-hmm. it wasn't always like that. Um, and so so this has been great. I really appreciate it. I'll we'll thank our listeners as well. And I always tell folks, if you are learning from or otherwise enjoying the podcast, if you rate and review, that does help me out. Keep it going. Bring back wonderful guests like my dad here in this specific occasion. And on many other times, we've got executives from across produce retail all the way down to the produce managers making it happen at the store level. I will add one more thing. Um, as you all know, I recently released the first ever State of the Produce Manager report, and I have had a number of folks asking, hey, can I get the full thing? It is a complimentary resource for retailers, so just reach out to me at ashley at nickelgrowthstrategies.com. Nickel is N-I-C-K-L-E. You can also find me on LinkedIn. For folks on the supply side, it's available for a nominal investment. Um, it is always a great thing to know your customer better and understand their challenges beyond the area in which you work with them specifically so it does have good value for folks on that side of the table as well all right that's it thank you again dad thank you to our listeners and we'll see everyone next week on the produce retail podcast